Today is March 7th, 2018. Our message today is Isaiah's richly ornamented robe. And I didn't make a mistake. It may be a robe you don't know anything about. But while we're on the subject of beautiful giftings, Mr. Thomas, was there something that you wanted to share with us? Amen. God is good beyond description. If you're here tonight as a guest and you're not sure what's going on, this church is a family. And um, we don't just get together like some club who enjoys the same interest. We war together. We stand together. In here, none of us are white or black or Mexican or Vietnamese. Even those poor groups of bald-faced men in here. We don't discriminate against anyone. And so when... Steve and Joyce began trying to conceive and were experiencing some delays and difficulties. We began laying hands on them and praying. There's not a problem in this room that cannot be solved when the sons of God come together. Amen. 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 That is on our topic tonight. Much of what we're going to discuss this evening has to do with the kind of fruit that this ministry intends to bring forth and the way in which our sons and daughters will carry the banner of Jesus Christ into the nations. Amen? Amen. I think probably what you ought to do is turn to Isaiah. We're going to do something unusual tonight. You'll be in Isaiah 49. And when you get there, you put a marker there. Stay there. Leave it open. Unless you think I'm lying to you or what comes up on a screen is not correct, in every case, you'll be able to stay in Isaiah 49 tonight. I want to walk you through uh, a revelation that God gave me, and I don't want you to have to leave Isaiah 49, so I'll quote the other scriptures to you. So if you found Isaiah 49, you'll be where you need to be all night. That's good news, isn't it? Many of you know that in November of 2016, the Lord revealed something to my family that has sharpened our direction. It has clarified our course. 
Tonight, I want to share with you the insights that the Lord used to get my attention from Isaiah 49. I would never take the time to do that in this group if I didn't fully believe in every way that there's a strong message for, the, for you in this chapter, period. Whether you're single or married, whether you've been here a short time or a long time, I believe this is for you or we would not do it. I do want to reflect that 10 days ago, I had an extraordinary privilege. I've not preached very much this year. And um, Elder Bosch felt sorry for me, and he included me in a message called Patriarchal Powers and Toxic Masculinity. Do you all remember that? 10 days ago. Uh, That message was centered around a revelation that Elder Bosch had from number 7 and verse 2 where the passage speaks about sons becoming the heads of their father's household. In this ministry, we don't just want to produce sons. We want to produce sons that are far better than their fathers. Men men that outshine the previous generation with all of their strengths and none of their weaknesses. That Wednesday, Buddy Brasso, good to see you, buddy. Y'all try not to fall into personal lust over Pastor Brasso showing his legs to us wearing shorts today. He was quite a hit in, uh, in Virginia. Uh, a rock star might be too big of a term, but they, it's probably not too big of a term. term. They loved Buddy there, and uh, Submission Ministry sends you their greetings. Buddy preached about three lives and no reserves. That was last Wednesday, one week ago. The idea was that three lives, Buddy, Kim, and Jules, would go into Peru with no reserves. It was about the way that we leave our lost life, our life of sin and death. We enter into the life of Christ. That's life number two. And we're hoping for the life that he will reveal in us from heaven. Number three, and all of it requires you to keep nothing in reserve. Were you all blessed by that message? Yes. And then I missed the message of the century. I missed Pastor Wade and Pastor Matthew and Elder Charlie delivering a word called femininity. If I get this wrong, please let me know. And heart-turning superpowers. Man, that sounds like a good one. I heard that people were filled with the Holy Ghost, that lives were changed, that amazing things happened. It seems that they began their message in 1 Kings and moved all the way through the book of Esther. They worked through the law, the prophets, and the writings. And they looked at the ways in which our daughters are raised to be queens that turn the hearts of their kings. Oh, man, that's a good message. I'm going to stay off of queen lyrics at this standpoint. I trust that tonight you will see that this message marries many of the principles, many of the themes that you've heard preached about in the last 10 days into practical application. Ultimately, we're going to focus on our children tonight. That's where I hope to land tonight is what our children will become. But I think we are to just jump into the text now. Is that fair? Isaiah 49 in verse 1. By the way, this began for me 16 months ago, and my friends and I will be in just a few days for the fourth time in the region that the Bible calls a swan in 16 months. That's one trip 
every four months. Because when God speaks, it demands a response. If he speaks to you tonight, then that revelation will demand a response. Are you ready? In Isaiah 49, beginning in verse 1. Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my birth, he has made mention of my name. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. This is one of those passages that because it answers itself, it tells you that we're speaking about Israel. It would be easy to miss its practical application to you. It does speak to Israel. Just like the book of Exodus tells the story of the Hebrews. And yet, it's been a story that has inspired freedom and liberation in people groups around the world. Just like the book of Genesis tells us about the formation of a family, but it also tells you about the formation of your family. This verse does speak about Israel, but it also speaks about the purpose that every believer in history has had. And I want to talk to you about your purpose. Every believer in history was born with one. I'm going to quote to you passages that you can write down. In Ephesians 2.10, we are the workmanship of God, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. That means that every man or woman in this room is the workmanship of God. That means that he created you for a purpose. There are no spare parts in here. There is no life that is just left over as an afterthought in here. I spent many a days in my younger years being told that I was one drunken night's mistake. Can I tell you that is not how the king of kings feels about me. It's not how he feels about you. Life is precious. And no matter what the circumstance that it arrives in, God designed the life. And when he designs your life, it's because he has a purpose for you. In Deuteronomy 32.6, he says, In this way, you repay the Lord, O foolish and unwise people. Is he not your father, your creator, who made you? Informed you. When you create something, when you make it, when you form it, you begin to love it. Has anybody in here ever made anything with your own two hands? Some of the silliest things that you'll ever see are people's first craft projects. First time they built a dog house. First time, they, because they love it. It's usually quite pathetic, but they love it. You can't give enough praise to them for having done it. But they love it because they made it. Well, your king, he made you. And when you broke your life, when you wrecked it, when you fouled it up with sin, he remade it. The Bible calls that being renewed in Christ. In Psalm 100 in verse 3, he says, Know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us. We are his. We are his people. The sheep of his pasture. 
He didn't just make you. He declares that he owns you. That means that he expects certain things of you. He loves you and he sees potential in you. This relates to your purpose. In Isaiah 19, 25, the Lord Almighty will bless them saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people. How many of you would never have thought of Egypt as the people of the Lord? In the third chapter of Exodus, they're the oppressor of God's people. But in the end, they will be God's people. Assyria, my handiwork. That's another way to say my workmanship. Assyria also oppressed Israel, was on the wrong side of the fence. They were doing all of the wrong things at all of the wrong times. But God says, no, I made them. They're mine. And Israel, my inheritance. You know, it may not surprise you that Israel is an inheritance with the Lord, but would you put them in the same sentence with Egypt, with Assyria? This is incontrovertible proof that what God made, what He created, He loves, He owns, and He feels a responsibility towards. Part of our maturing will be to learn to respond to that responsibility. We call that purpose. In Psalm 138.8, He says it this way, The Lord will fulfill His purpose for me. Your love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not abandon the works of your hands. In this church, we talk a lot about mezuzah statements. We, If you're new here, that has to do with a little box that Jews put on their front door and every door of their house that is to a room that is not a bathroom. And it's a reminder of what they were created for, what they're supposed to do. In this church, we often have mezuzah statements On our wall, we carry them in our Bible. It's a reminder when you go in and out of your house that God made you for a purpose. When we read this passage in Isaiah, he said clearly that our mouths were a sharpened sword. He went on to say, you are my servant Israel in whom I will display my splendor. One of the things that you'll find out tonight is no matter what your mezuzah statement is, no matter what your purpose is, it will always involve speaking and displaying. It will always involve preaching and demonstrating. It will always involve what can be seen and what can be heard. What the word says and how you've experienced it. It will be a defense of the word and it will confirm the word. There will always be two or more witnesses to what God is doing in your life. So when Matthew Pirro says that his mezuzah is to propel people into God's presence, the question is how do I preach it and how do I display it? When uh, Pastor Wade says that his mezuzah statement is equipping the saints, it's about how do I preach that? And how do I display it? We are not a people who announce and talk only. We do exactly what we preach. And we're not a people who do things and will not tell you the reason why. Every person in here was born with a purpose. That purpose can be preached about and that purpose can be displayed. It will always involve both of those things. We speak the word but we display the splendor of God in our lives. 
It's one thing for Steve and Joyce to say, we believe God will give us a baby. But now they're displaying that faith in action. They come from a long line of saints in this room that have both desired to have a child and had to fight in faith to have that child. The last time I saw this room erupt like it did today was when John and Joy announced that they were pregnant. A seven-year fight. You know, when you've won the battle, people forget how difficult it was. Ladies, when your 18-year-old moves out of the house, he has no idea how long you labored for him. You'll remember because it hurt. But when the child was born, that's all anybody remembers, and they celebrate the day of the birth, not the day the labor started. So many things in our lives are that way. You were born for a purpose. How are you going to preach about God's purpose in your life? How are you going to display God's purpose in your life? Another way to sum this up is in Isaiah 61. And you stay right in Isaiah 49. I will not lie to you today. Tomorrow, you'll have to double check me. But today, Spence, you're already leaving, man. That's incredible. Already walking out on me, Spence. Isaiah 61, verse 1. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. Why does the Spirit anoint him? To preach good news. And to whom does he preach it? See, every purpose involves speaking the word. Watch as he describes this. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty, Instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the displaying of his splendor. See, Isaiah was born with a purpose that could both be preached and displayed. When we're thinking about that, the purpose for which we are born Becomes into full focus when you recognize that he wants to display his splendor through your life. That's the point. Who did Isaiah preach to? The same people Jesus preached to. The same that you will preach to. They literally fall into a category of seven, but we won't get into that. It's the poor, the brokenhearted, the captives, the prisoners, the mourning, the grieving, and the despairing. That's who His purpose was for. When you consider this, it's an amazing thing to know that you are not a mistake. You didn't come in here a mistake tonight. Your parents didn't just decide to have you. Your life itself was ordained by God himself. Say, Eric, you don't understand. I was born to drug addicts. They didn't have anything to do with it, friend. God ordained that you would be born. I was born to drug addicts. You say, well, the thing is, is my parents were alcohol or they were not good people. Do you really think that God cannot use people that are messed up? He's using you. 
Our very first point tonight, I'd like to put on the screen and leave it in a PowerPoint. The purpose of the life of every believer. You have a purpose and it will always involve two very specific things. Speaking the word and displaying the word. So if you're in here tonight and you don't know what your purpose is, it starts with what you will speak and what you will display. The Lord began to reveal this to me after I'd been born again for 23 years. Sometimes, can I say, revelation takes a long time. But man, when it gets here, when it gets here, it demands a response. What we're talking about that, I'd like to move to the second purpose, and then we'll read it in Isaiah. The second purpose for every person in here is that you will have a likelihood of feelings of failure. That's our next revelation. So let's pick up in Isaiah 49. Are you there? Isaiah 49, very next verse. But I said, I have labored to no purpose. I have spent my strength in vain and for nothing. Yet what is due me is in the Lord's hand. And my reward is with my God. Man, when you're on purpose, when you're doing what God has called you to do, when you're speaking the word and displaying the word, all of hell stands against you. You can look around you and say, lost people, their lives seem easy. You can look around you in traffic and the other guy's got nobody in his lane ahead of him. So many ways that you can see that That the people of God are resisted. That's because you're dangerous to the enemy. When a man knows that he was born for a purpose and he's speaking about it. When he's displaying it, the enemy is going to resist it. Yet what is due me is in the Lord's hand and my reward is with my God. This reminds me of a time in David's life. Was there ever anybody born with a purpose like David? David is an encouragement to us all, isn't he? You read his struggles in the Psalms and you see what it's like for a man who is born with a purpose. He's resisted at every turn. You know, one of the things that I love about David are the way that his men loved him. His 30 mighty fighting men, his three chiefs, each of the men that were like the chiefs, but not one of the chiefs. By the way, his 30 mighty fighting men turn into about 37 if you just keep counting. They're almost impossible to number. David is an example of great leadership and a man who is on purpose. But in 1 Samuel 30 and in verse 3, I'm just going to read it to you. I want you to hear it tonight. When David and his men came to Ziklag, not zigzag, that's, uh, you get that in a smoke shop. Ziklag. They found it, don't you? Act like you don't know what that is. When David and his men came to Ziklag, they found it destroyed by fire. And their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. That's a bad day. So David and his men wept aloud until they had no strength left to weep. David's two wives had been captured. Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail. Uh Uh-oh. Abby, you in here? Taken captive. The widow of Nabal of Carmel. we got to talk to you about your first marriage choice. (laughs) David was greatly distressed because the men were talking of stoning him. That's a pretty rough day. 
What men were talking of stoning him? The finest men in Israel's history. Each one was bitter in spirit because his sons and daughters. Because of his sons and daughters. (laughs) They didn't mind the wives being gone so much. They apparently were not happily married. But David found strength in the Lord his God. See, in Isaiah, what we find out is that as soon as you discover your purpose, you find opposition to that purpose. It's actually inevitable because the enemy wants to stop the real work of God. You get on the right track, you'll get flat tires on the way to meetings. You get on the right track and your boss will tell you you got to work late. You get on the right track... And all hell will break loose on you in ways that you never had. Old girlfriends will call. Get off Facebook. Get in his book. You get on the right track with God. And the enemy will try to derail you. But the response in Isaiah was very specifically. My reward is in the Lord's hand. Or my reward is with God. I'm going to suggest to you that there are two things that David did that are amazing. In his next uh, passage of scripture, David says, bring me an ephod. David was not a priest, but he put on the garment of a priest. In that day, while his men want to stone him, while his wives are captive, while his children are destroyed and the men's children are in captivity, David began to seek God that day. He said, Lord, do I pursue them? What kind of question is that? What do you mean, do I pursue them? Common sense says I got to pursue them. My rational mind says I got to pursue them. If I don't do something, these men are going to kill me. Yes, but if I move outside of God's will, I'm dead anyway. He took on the ephod of God. He put on the vestments of Christ. He stopped thinking as a man who had lost everything and started thinking as a man that had access to something. Oh, can you hear me in here tonight? When you have a purpose, it's going to be warred against. When you find out what that purpose is, the enemy is going to try to stop you from speaking about it. He's going to try to stop you from displaying it. He'll try to steal every testimony that you have. And you're going to have to learn when the whole world wants to stone you to stop and put on an ephod. You have a reward and it's in the Lord's hand. See, Jesus, when he taught them to pray in Matthew 6, 11, he didn't say, you know, weekly when you pray. Monthly. When you pray, when you're in trouble and you pray, he didn't say that. He said, you pray, our father who is in heaven, give us this day our daily bread. Which day? day. How many of you ate yesterday? How many of you ate today? What's wrong with you? Look, y'all help out the white timid people in here. (laughs) They don't know it's okay to speak out loud in church. But if you grew up knowing it was okay to speak out loud in church, why would you raise your hand when I ask you a question? What are you in second grade? Come on now, I'm going to call you on the phone tomorrow and say, hey, how you doing? And you go, what's wrong with you? What's wrong with you, Gabe? You got to get out of your box. We're not just sitting in church. This is a family meeting tonight. How many of you ate yesterday? 
many of you plan on eating again today? As often as you eat, you got to put on the vestments of Christ. You got to get on your face and say, Lord, how do I protect the purpose that you gave me? Mighty God, how do I preach about it? How do I display it? Because if I go to war at the wrong time, I'm dead before I start. He thought he had lost everything, but he still had access to the only thing that mattered. Oh, church, you have access to a very great God. And as Isaiah 49 says, your reward is in his hand. Your reward being in his hand means that you can go to that hand daily to get your bread. You can go hourly to get your bread. I had a Labrador retriever for a while. About 12 years. We had a big argument in my house. She ate everything she could find. Should have named her Bigtha. Or Inertia. Or OBCT. The argument was, does she eat because of her fear? That if we... Don't give her what she wants now. She won't ever get any more again. I lost this particular argument like I do most in my house. We put out all the food she could ever eat. We put the 150-pound Sam-sized dog food on the floor. We found out she ate until she couldn't stand. She laid there and moaned. Made sounds like some of you single men make. And ate some more. She's like a horse. She ate until she almost killed herself. I want you to know that the Lord has set out all the food that you could ever eat. He's put every answer you need in his presence. But he makes you work enough for it. That you don't just lay there and get fat spiritually. And he does that because he loves you. He knows what you need and when you need it. There's a second kind of reward that he says, though. One was in his hand and the other is with God. Isaiah 49 says it as, Yet what is due me is in the Lord's hand and my reward is with my God. There's a reward in his hand that he wants to give you daily, but there is a reward that is with him and you do not get until the end of the race. Revelation 3.11, speaking of that reward, says it this way. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Tonight, your crown is that purpose in all that it produces. Him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In Jeremiah's day, the people were rebuked for having ears but not hearing. Ezekiel uses the exact phrase. He could prophesy and they heard the words that were coming out of his mouth. But it was like he was speaking a foreign language. Have you been hearing... All of your Christian life that you can go to the Lord daily, but you forget to do it. 
Have you been hearing all of your Christian life that there is a reward, a day in which everything will be fixed, but it's at the end and you live like it will never come? If you have a purpose, if you know that feelings of failure accompany that purpose, then you are going to have to go to the Lord's hand. You're going to have to endure until you stand with the Lord in the end. As surely as every man is called, is called to both speak the word and display it, every called man will have to fight through despair and feelings of failure. As soon as you start to work, the devil will try to keep you from working. And as soon as you start to work, he'll tell you that your work is not doing any good. You're not getting anywhere. It's not going to work. But you have a reward daily from the Lord if you will seek him. You have a reward at the end of your life if you're not enjoying your reward now. This takes us to our third point tonight. Our impact is too small in our own eyes. You're going to see this clearly said in Isaiah. In Isaiah, beginning in verse 6, which again is right where we left off. Isaiah 49 in verse 6, he says... It is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of the house of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. You know, when you are working inside of your purpose, this means that you are speaking what God has told you to speak. It means you are displaying the kingdom in your life. He'll tell you that your work is not going to produce anything. And then soon as you fight through that, because like David, you put on the ephod. You hear from God that day. You have the hope of being joined with the Lord. The next thing that he tells you is, well, you may be doing some good, but what difference does it make in the grand scheme of things? You're too small. You're too insignificant. What, am I the only one that he's lied to in here? If you raise your hands, I'm going to come get you. Am I the only one that's heard these things? See, when you're called of God, mamas, when you get that baby that you've been wanting all of your adult life, the thing that you knew that you were called to do, the first thing that he tries to tell you is that you now have no purpose. The baby's taking all of your purpose. Then when you get past that and you realize that your purpose is to raise a king or a queen, he starts to tell you, yeah, but you're not doing any good with it. When you start to hear his voice and he encourages you to keep on keeping on, then he starts to tell you, yeah, but it won't make any difference. You, your kid can't even learn his multiplication tables. Having trouble with his ABCs. I want you to hear what the scripture says about this. James 3, 5. This is a negative example. But I'm going to turn it into a positive one. When you preach, you can do what you want to do. This is what I want to do tonight. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body. But it makes great boast. Consider what a great forest. Is set on fire by a small spark. Small sparks can ruin cities. Man, you can say one thing at the wrong time. 
Let me tell on myself. And she'll never forget it. Do I look uh, in, in, in this gym? <laughs> of course, you can set a small spark that keeps a city alive in a winter or a famine too. You know, your small spark may set the fire of God ablaze in somebody's life. It might consume everything else and leave only what is holy remaining. One of the things that this passage in Isaiah reveals when he says it's too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those in Israel I have kept, I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. God thinks globally. You hear that? Salvation to the ends of the earth. Jews and Gentiles. He's not a respecter of any class of man. He had to start somewhere. He started with the Jews. But he always had in mind the Gentiles. The very ends of the earth. God starts with one man. A small spark. Think on our father Abraham. In Genesis 12, 3, he's told he's going to be a blessing to the whole world. That's a guy that didn't even have a spark. Till that one night, Sarah smiled at him in a special way. He had a word from God. And he had a duty to display its splendor. I want to encourage you, saints. You have no idea what the spark of faith is achieving in your life. You have no idea. I mean, what does it look like to raise an apostle? Does that mean that they never pick their nose? What does it look like to raise a prophet? What what does that look like? Does it mean that that prophet never lies about his diaper? I suspect that raising an apostle, a prophet, a teacher, a pastor, an evangelist, is just like raising any other sinner that has to be born again. But they're born with a great purpose. And you might have to fight through a lot of diapers, a lot of nonsense. Oh, dear God, a lot of teenage years to get there. In Isaiah 46.10, it's maybe my favorite. You stay in Isaiah 49. That's our agreement tonight. He said, I make known the end from the beginning. From ancient times, what is still to come. I say my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. Did you hear it? He makes known or he sees the end from the beginning. What did he tell us in Isaiah 49? He said clearly that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. Yeah, I got it. You wanted to say nations. But he says ends of the earth. Can I tell you that God has seen those ends from the very beginning? He's always got his eyes on those that are the furthest from him. He's making known His desires to you at the very beginning of your walk that He knows where your salvation will end. It's a small spark. But if you fan it into flame, I will take you into the nations and you will go and get the end of my goal. The talos of your salvation. He will take you into places you never dreamed of. Can I tell you? I was born in Texas and drugged to Louisiana against my will. Took several divorces, a whole lot of suspensions, and a few interactions with the local 
law enforcement to keep me there. I got back to Texas as fast as I possibly could. But I never in a million years dreamed that he would take me to preach in over 30 countries. What starts as a small spark, like little Christopher sitting over there, it'll turn into a raging inferno for God. You don't have the ability to measure today what his purpose and sticking to his purpose in your life is worth. You only know what happens if you snuff it out. You can look all around you and see what happens if you give up on it. But you don't know what will happen if you stand fast. Oh, church, that we could stand fast in what God has given us. Those who are the furthest from Him, they're at the end of everything. Didn't our King say the last would be first? You may be the furthest from Him, but you are the first thing on His mind. You don't believe me. You're not quite sure what I'm saying is true. Then why did the whores and the tax collectors enter the kingdom before the religious people? Those that were the furthest from him were the first thing on his mind. Wherever you start, it's going to look insignificant. The devil's going to tell you you can't do it. Even when you're working, it's not worth it. You look at him and say, I'm about to set it on fire. A small spark. Might set the holiness of God ablaze in someone. Oh man, you don't know what the effect of your witness is. You don't know what you're teaching your children today, whether or not it's saving their lives. You can't see it right now. But can I tell you the number of men that I've known that got into a desperate situation and remember the name of Jesus? Right here on the corner of Winburn and Nagel couple drug dealers that we were witnessing to heard about the name of Jesus from Pastor Lamb. Little blonde-haired, blue-eyed, cracker-white Opie. It is true. Zeke's, Zeke's a handsome man, but he, he personifies like a narc or an FBI agent. I wanted him to walk a few feet further away from me when we were working there. And the man that I'll just call Dennis for now. Zeke began to tell him, you're the biggest guy on the block and you're strapped right now. But what happens on the day somebody shoots you in the face? He said what all guys say. That he expects it, that it's part of it, that he's a man and that he'll handle himself. Well, it wasn't 45 days later, he got shot in the face. While he's laying there choking on his own blood, he cried out to Jesus, and his life was saved. What was that spark work worth? What was it worth? Well, if you're Dennis, it's worth your whole life. You don't have the ability to know whether or not your ministry is worthwhile. You just know that quitting it makes you as base and as common as the circus church all around us. Let's go back to Isaiah 49. In Isaiah 49. Beginning in verse 8. This is what the Lord says. In the time of my favor I will answer you. And in the day of salvation I will help you. I will keep you. And make you. To be a covenant for the people. To to restore the lands. 
and to reassign its desolate inheritances. To say to the captives, come out, and to those in darkness, be free. You know, the group that you're called to, they're always the poor, the broken, the mourning, the grieving. That's who the people always are. Now, let me tell you what the landscape is always like. It's always the desolate inheritance. It's always the same. You're not called to people that their life is going well and they've got it all put together. Those people don't want the Lord. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach good news to the poor. He is not, it's not that he's not interested in those who have their inheritance put together. It's not that he's not interested in those that feel themselves wealthy. It's that they're not interested in him and they won't listen anyway. What we're looking for is the purpose that God has put on our life to speak his word, to display his word among the poor in the broken in every place that is desolate and has no inheritance. To reassign its desolate inheritances. To say to the captives, come out into those in darkness, be free. This covenant that he's given us, this covenant that he's put us in, it restores people and it restores their environments. You know, when you're thinking about that, it's important to know that it doesn't go the other way. What happens if we take a bunch of sinners and give them a perfect environment? They're still sinners and they'll screw it up immediately. You want to prove that? What happened with Adam and Eve? It's always been that way. It don't matter how nice the house is. It doesn't matter how nice the cars are. You know, he'll be high and she'll be out doing something she shouldn't be doing immediately. But if you change the man, the environment begins to change while the man is changing. You can go somewhere that they're living in a garbage dump. And when you teach them that they're princes, the garbage dump begins to change. In Acts 19, uh, Acts 9 and verse 18, you remember that the apostle Paul, he had scales on his eyes. And when Ananias prayed for him, those scales fell off of his eyes. Just one man, just his eyes. But how many people have been cured of their spiritual blindness? Because that one man's eyes got open. See what starts as small as a spark. Well, it might touch people for 2000 years after you. When we begin to preach to the poorest, to the most broken, to those without hope. When we look and say you have no inheritance, your entire life is burning down all around you. And we teach them how to be restored. Their environment will change. But if you go to try to change the environment without changing the man, it's humanism and it will never work. That's why governments never really help people. Pretty sure that if... The government just did this or just did that. No, they'd still be damned sinners. Just like you. Until you're regenerated. Until you're born from above. But once you're born from above, everything around you begins to change. There are two very specific things in verse 9. To say to the captives, come out. And to say to those in darkness, be free. See, it's one thing to know 
that the covenant that we're preaching brings people out of sin. It takes them from their captive status. It rescues them from the dominion or domination of sin. But the next thing that it does is it frees them from the darkness of sin and brings them into a new kingdom. For instance, you can tell a man that he's going to hell because he steals. But even if he stops stealing, it doesn't mean that there's something better that is produced in his life. Ephesians tells you you have to teach him to do something good with his hands. It's one thing to preach against sin. It's another thing to see the sin broken and its effects removed. Colossians says it this way. Colossians 1.13 For he has rescued us. That's the coming out from sin. From the dominion of darkness and brought us. Somebody say brought us. Into the kingdom of the son he loves. He didn't just bring you out. He frees you in a brand new world. When your life is full of purpose. You don't work to change a man's environment. You speak and you demonstrate the kingdom. So that what happens is the man wants with all of his heart to come out of sin. And having come out of sin, he wants to go into righteousness. The gospel message is out of something and into something. It's freed from sin and the elimination even of the presence of sin because you're walking in righteousness. Oh, the church is not preaching this enough. It's not preaching it enough because it wants to gather as many people in one room as they can. And while they might all know that sin is wrong, none of them are living more free of sin this month than last month. That is so sad. It cannot be that way. The pastors act more like pimps than pastors. They take money from the people, and the people then have their ears tickled by the pimp that is posing as a pastor. It should never be that way. You know why it should never be that way? Because that never changes the environment around because the man has never actually changed. So it turns into some ridiculous game. We talk about Jesus and we think in hearing about Jesus we're saved. In reality, it's only when we're doing what he says that we're actually saved. You got to come out and you got to be set free. It's got to be both. There's no middle ground there. You got to come all the way out of sin and all the way into righteousness. Coming out is just a short trip. Once you're out, if you don't come into righteousness, sin still looks attractive back there. You start saying things like, you know, back when I was lost, I would have, because you still want to. But when you come into righteousness, there is no looking back. There's only looking forward. You're a man with a purpose who is speaking the word of God, who is demonstrating the word of God. And all you can do It's want to set the world on fire for Jesus one spark at a time. Oh man, I pray that this catch fire in here. I won't speak to you again before I'm in the Middle East. Every time I do this, I'm forced to think if this were the last message that I were preaching, what would I want to say? I'm preaching to people in here that are young and single. People in here that are minors. People that are adults. People that are married. People that have kids, people that have grandkids, and it's still one message. It's, it, it's the most serious thing on the planet. You have a purpose. 
And you only have this lifetime to give Him. How much of it have we already wasted? Well, we're talking about that purpose. Let's get to the parts I don't like to talk about as much. The parts that the Lord beat me my head over. Put me in tears as He was showing me. This comes in Isaiah 49, starting in verse 10. Are you there? Isaiah 49, 10. They will neither hunger nor thirst, nor will the desert heat or the sun beat upon them. He who has compassion on them will guide them. I've been called a lot of things in my life. Some are repeatable from the pulpit, most are not. I'm not often accused of being overwhelmingly compassionate. It's often said the other way. I'm a serious person with a serious message, and I prefer to be taken seriously. My attitude is usually that I'll hug you after you have done what you're supposed to do, not beforehand. And the Lord of glory began to deal with me about my attitude. He who has compassion on them will guide them. Who gets to guide his people? Those that have compassion on them. And lead them beside springs of water. Here I'd like to stop and preach about the Holy Ghost. But with 18 minutes left, I don't know that I should do that. But if I were going to do that. What I think that I would tell you. Is that on the last and the greatest day of feast. To the most religious people in the world. On the highest day. On the seventh day. He said to them, if any man thirst, let him come and drink of me. You know why he said that to them? Because he had compassion on them. And he knew who needed to guide them. A Christian that is not filled with the Holy Ghost is at best like a car with no key in the ignition. You may have all the potential in the world, but you won't have any idea how to put it into powerful motion. When you get filled with the Holy Ghost, His presence in you becomes a contagious river overflowing to everybody that is around you. The man who is truly full of the Holy Ghost is first and foremost holy because the Holy Ghost is in him. He won't be talking about what he has to do or what he can get away with doing. All he'll want to do is that which the Lord has already shown him. This is why when the power and presence of the Holy Ghost comes upon His people, you are witnesses in Jerusalem. You are witnesses in Judea. You are witnesses in Samaria. You are witnesses to the very ends of the earth which God has made known from the beginning. His presence is the power to perform what He has required of you. If you are trying to carry out the principles of Christ without the Spirit of Christ, You must be the most frustrated of all men. You must be filled with the Holy Ghost. When we say you must be filled with the Holy Ghost, if you are not understanding the compassion of God, it sounds like a requirement. Nobody likes requirements. It's actually an empowerment, not a requirement. It just turns out that the empowerment is a requirement. If you are not empowered to act like God, then you will forever be a hypocrite. 
But when you're empowered to act like God, it is freeing in every way. It's out of sin and into righteousness. The very spirit of righteousness is carrying you. Oh, how much do we need to be filled with the Holy Ghost? You think, charismatic, that you're filled with the Holy Ghost because you speak in tongues. That's like a baby thinking he's mastered the English language because he can now say mama. It is the very first It is the initial. It's the baby crowning. It's so far from maturity that it's embarrassing anybody could think so. Children can pray in the Holy Ghost at two or three years old, but that doesn't mean that they understand their purpose or know how to display it or to fight through despair to get to it or are focused on the people and the places that God is focused on. The power and presence of the Holy Ghost will lead you into all of those things. Do you need to be filled with the Holy Ghost today? That sounds more like the church that Jesus died for. Not the one that is full of goats being entertained by clowns. They will neither hunger nor thirst, nor will the desert heat or the sun beat upon them. He who has compassion on them will guide them and lead them beside springs of water. I will turn all my mountains into roads and all my highways will be raised up. You know, when you look at this compassion and guidance, compassion and no guidance is worthless. Feeling sorry for somebody, displaying empathy for someone, but not guiding them away from sin is worthless. Oh, bless their little heart. Forgive me, but what the hell do you mean by that? They are going to hell and sending people to hell. Jeremiah once fell into that pit of compassion without guidance. In Jeremiah 15 and verse 18, he says, Why is my pain so unending? And my wound grievous and incurable. Will you be to me like a deceptive brook? Like a spring that fails? That doesn't sound like a man filled with the Holy Ghost. In verse 19, Therefore this is what the Lord says. If you repent, you know who he's talking to? Jeremiah. I will restore you that you may serve me. If you utter worthy and not worthless words. Somebody say worthless. Worthless. It is worthless to have compassion without guidance. They have to go together. Your compassion should cause you to want to guide people. Guide them out of their sin. You will be my spokesman. Let this people turn to you, but you must not turn to them. Let me just talk real to you in the house of God. You got lost relatives and you have compassion on them, but you're not guiding them. It's worthless. Totally worthless. Oh, but they're they're my moms. That's my pops. I, I, I love them. Well, I'm glad that you love them. But if you do not speak to them about what is actually killing them, it's not very loving. So, well, you know, I just don't, I I just don't know if it's my place to do that. You better learn your purpose. You were born into a new family. You're born into the family of God. If you can't tell your own relatives, then who should? By the same way that compassion without guidance is worthless, guidance without no, without any compassion Man, that's not an accurate representation of who God is. 
Verse 11 of Isaiah 49 says, I will turn my mountains into roads and my highways will be raised up. The compassion of God and the guidance of God raises people up. It never leaves them where they are. To guide somebody and not care about them, what would be the point? Exodus 3 verse 8 says, I heard their misery. So I have come down. He goes on to describe some things and then say, to raise them up. He goes on in verse 10 to say, so go, I am sending you. We have a God who looks at a situation with a desolate inheritance. A people that are broken in their spirit. A people that have turned away from him. And he said, I've seen the misery that that causes. So I have come down to raise them up. He's not going to leave anybody where they are. His compassion makes him want to guide them. He's not compassionate sitting back going, wow, really must be difficult to be you, Sydney. Really must be hard to be you, Frank. His compassion causes him to come grab a man by the hand and say, I'm raising you up. Except God doesn't come to do it. He sends you to. He tells Moses, I'm concerned about them. So I've come down. I'm going to raise them up. Go, I'm sending you. See, the purpose of every man or woman in this room is speaking God's word. It's displaying God's character. No matter what your mezuzah is, you can never get away from that. That's what he's called you to do. He cares about people. He cares about those that are furthest from him. They're first on his mind. As you are grabbing hold of these points. So far we've gone through 11 verses. And we've learned that every believer has a purpose. That every believer encounters feelings of failure regularly. That every believer believes that their own impact is too small on the world around them. That every believer is working to restore the inheritances of others. That both compassion and guidance must work together. Do you see that in Isaiah? Let me tell you about my region. There are many that are like it. But this one's mine. The Lord began to speak to me in verse 12. See, they will come from afar. Some from the north, some from the west, and some from the region of a swan. When you hear that, that may not mean much to you. And I I can understand that. It's not your region. But 16 months ago, after having started churches in a few places and working in the Christian faith well for a long time the Lord began to speak to me about a place that I had no interest in and as he began to speak to me about that place my compassion started to grow my desire to see them guided towards the Lord started to grow and I walked through each of these things can we put them back on the screen for just a minute those five the first thing that happened to me was I began to wonder, could this really be in my purpose? I didn't feel like a man like me should be doing this. The second thing that happened is, there's no way that I can do this. um, I'm the wrong guy. 
The next thing that happened is even if I could make some kind of difference, it wouldn't be very much. The next thing that happened is the landscape is desolate, Lord. You don't understand. The next thing that happened is he began to deal with me with his compassion and his guidance. Now I want to tell you about that region. We have a few slides for this one. You just put the first one on the screen. This is where I was. Charlie and Joe loved Tennessee. I had heard about a place called Pigeon Ford many times. And I was driving from one meeting to another meeting. And as is, my truck is often broken down. I didn't mind pulling it over on the side of the road. We climbed down into this little stream. And I started to look around. I said, Lord, this is beautiful. I've been trying to get alone with you. I've been trying to get that daily bread. I've been trying to hear from you. And I haven't had any time. And now, Lord, I have like an hour and 37 minutes. It's kind of absurd. Like the Lord should punch a time clock. And he met with me anyway. And I began to weep and my Bible started to get... I'm not a crier either. You should know that. And I felt his presence there. Can we see the next one? And as he began to speak with me, this verse, Isaiah 49, 12. Well, in the NIV, it says the region of a swan. Here it is in its Greek Septuagint form. Behold, these from, dis- from a distance shall come, these from the north and west, and others from out of the land of the Persians. I didn't have any idea where a swan was. In fact, on a map, it's a city in Egypt. And I didn't know what to do with that. And when I saw this, I began to go, oh no. You're talking about where all the Muslims are, Lord? You know, I've been preaching that Muhammad was a pedophile for many years. You know, Lord, I've been teaching the whole world that Allah is Satan for many years. I've been speaking of the merit of Israel and the Jewish people set opposed and in contrast to the Muslim world, for many years. Is this really what you're doing, Lord? Let's go to the next slide. As I began to look, the Hebrew word behind the text here is sinem. Those of you that are familiar with paleo, I'll just put it together very quickly. Grab hold of the work in order to continue for your sons, their mighty work. And I realized the Lord was calling me To a region that I was totally ill-equipped for. But the equipping that I lacked, he was putting in the generations that would come after me. That my purpose was never about me. It was always about sons and daughters who would go further than I did. Spiritually and physically. And I began to get excited and I'm like, Lord... What is this region? What did, what did Persia look like in the year 700 when Isaiah is writing? Can we show that map? Everything that is in the yellow orangish color was Persia when Isaiah was alive. As I began to look at that, I was overwhelmed. It's hard for you maybe to grasp how big that is. So we, we put another map behind this one so that you could see it today. Uh, yeah, go ahead. One more, one more. There's not another one. There you go. On this map, what we have laid behind it are the modern countries. So you see Romania, Bulgaria, Greece, 
Turkey, Egypt, uh, Iran, Iraq, Turkmenistan, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Tajikistan, Uzbekistan. And as I began to look at that, I thought, Lord, there's no way. It literally cannot be done. I couldn't deny that I began to feel responsible for a region of the world that I had spent so little time in. Man, that is the call of God. When you start to care about a people that are the furthest thing from you because they're first on God's mind. You have a purpose in here. Buddy and Kim found their purpose in Peru. The Vincents found their purpose in Indonesia. Your purpose might be in this room. But everyone has a region of responsibility. Can you say region? Region. Of responsibility. responsibility. Now listen to this from Matthew while staring at that map. This is Matthew 9, 23 through 27. When Jesus entered the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the noisy crowd. When Jesus entered the house and he saw the carnival church with its circus clowns. When Jesus entered the church and he saw the prosperity pimp and his Rolex watches. When Jesus entered Christianity and he saw that they had made it a den of thieves. Verse 24. He said, go away. Can I tell you the last thing on earth that we want in this war-torn region of the world are people that are praying for gold dust. Unless, of course, they plan on taking the gold dust and selling it and giving it to the poor. Or people praying for gold teeth to appear in their mouths. I'm not against gold teeth. Especially if you're going to tear it from your mouth and give it to the poor. But gold for the sake of having gold? What Christian could be interested in such nonsense? That's without even starting on BMWs and houses and all of the trappings of this world. He said, go away. The girl is not dead but asleep. But they laughed at him. Can I tell you that the worldly church is still doing the same thing? Their parlor tricks, their entertainment, their large crowds. They would never say go away. But they would laugh at Jesus if he walked into the room. They just wouldn't know it was Jesus. In verse 25, after the crowd had been put outside, just like they will be put outside the kingdom, he went in and took the girl by the hand and she got up. News of this spread through all that region. Something amazing happens in verse 27. As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him and called out, Have mercy on us, son of David. The Lord began to deal with us that he would use the supernatural to cause the region to be sparked into fire. That we couldn't go and reach every person. But he would do such extraordinary things that they would seek us out because they were in a desolate inheritance. They were poor and they were broken and they wanted something to change. Oh, come on, church. 
Is the message that we're preaching worth Jesus dying for? I have a region of responsibility. It's not that I don't care about the United States now. This is my home. This is my home church. I have spiritual sons all over the country. It's not that I don't care about India anymore. But it's not in my region of responsibility. And God has appointed other men who are going as soon as we come back. We're all assigned a region of responsibility. Where is yours? Where is your region? Who are you praying for? Who are you hurting for? Who are you saying, Almighty God, that you would restore them? When you get set on fire for a region, God will set that region on fire with your preaching. The seventh point that I have for you today. Let's put those seven on the screen. The purpose of the life of every believer. You have a purpose. You're going to be fought against with feelings of failure. You're going to have to go to Him daily and know that there's a reward at the end. You're going to have to fight through the feeling that your impact is too small and settle for a spark that you're fanning into a flame. You're always going to go to desolate, impossible inheritances and restore them. It's compassion and guidance that you will bring the people the same thing that your king has brought you. A swan is in the middle of the 1040 window. It might as well be the 1040 window. Because the rest of the world is unconcerned with what those people do over there. They're only concerned when they get on planes and come here. Especially if those planes hit buildings. You want to fight terrorism? You could line Muslim terrorists up around the world and shoot them in single file. And there are not enough bullets. Wouldn't it be better to have compassion and want to see them born again? If they're that zealous for Satan. How many of you are familiar with the idea that Paul said he made much of his ministry among the Gentiles? That he might provoke some of his own people to jealousy. When those who are dedicated to the destruction of Israel are born again and they change and the environment around them begins to change. Do you really think Israel won't notice? The seventh one today is engraved palms. Can I tell you that this so wrecked my world? I had a little burr in my saddle, a thorn in my heart. The kind of thing that I don't like to say publicly, so I say it as often as I can. Precisely because I don't like to. And the Lord would have to begin dealing with it. And I didn't know how he would begin dealing with it. He began to speak to me right out of this passage. And he clearly said in Isaiah 49, verse 13. Shout for joy, O heavens. Rejoice, O earth. Burst into song, O mountains, for the Lord comforts his people. And he will have compassion on his afflicted ones. The Lord never forgets the afflicted. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. 
Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? I literally looked away from the page at this point. There were some personal pains in my life that I thought that I had dealt with. And maybe I had, but not to the Lord's satisfaction. And I genuinely had no idea what came next. Though she may forget, I will not forget you. At the time, I was a 42-year-old man, and I didn't have words to express the feeling that I was overwhelmed with, knowing that the love of our Savior makes a mother's love look insignificant. I felt a restoration in that moment where the same things that were true five minutes before were still true, but they didn't have the same hold on me that they once had. Man, do you have pains in here tonight that still control your behavior today? You can say that you don't. But if you're reacting to people today a certain way based on how things affected you in your past, then your past is still very much in your present, isn't it? When you get angry at certain topics, when you bite back and say, well, if you knew where I was from, what difference does it make where you're from? I know where you're standing right now. You might be standing in the body of Christ tonight with a piece of you still thoroughly infected with Egypt. And the Lord wants to heal you of that. See, I've engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are ever before me. As I heard that and I was weeping, I couldn't help but see our Savior with his pierced hands and realizing that people let you down, but the King of Kings will never let you down. Men are liars, but the Lord has never been a liar. Comfort and compassion for the afflicted. They're ever before him. He engraved us on the palm of his hands. That made me begin wondering about what he was actually saying to me. Don't you it when you hear that you get to go do miracles somewhere? I'll say, what's wrong with you? What's wrong with you people? Everybody loves that a region will be set on fire because of miraculous things. It was this verse that made me realize what really sets a region on fire. I'm going to read it to you out of Mark 8, 34. Uh, taking a note from Pastor Brasso. Then he called the crowd to him, along with his disciples. Just so you know, that's everybody. Crowd and disciples, that's everybody. And he said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Lord, you engraved them on your hands, and you were inviting me to follow you into a region to do what? For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. 
He didn't just call us to go do miraculous things. He's called us to follow him to our deaths. And when people see that you're in a region that you die for being in, they stop questioning the sincerity of why you're there. And they start wondering what could possess somebody to come where they're hated. What could possess people to come where they're in prison? What could possess people to stand up to the military might of the Middle East or the sword of the terrorist? I'm possessed of a purpose. My God says you're the furthest from him, but you're the first thing on his mind. As this settled in on me, I began to resent the gospel that is being preached around us that is no gospel at all. In Revelation 18, 23, the light of a lamp will never shine in you again. The voice of the bridegroom and the bride will never be heard in you again. Your merchants were the world's great men. Your merchants were the world's great men. By your magic spell, all the nations were led astray. Before I read this next verse, there is a spirit of the world that is moving through Islam, and it's also moving through the worldly church. It appeals to the most base and fleshly components, and it attracts to it the greatest men of every region. That is how you get people to follow it. Look, the great man is doing it. His beautiful Barbie wife is doing it. 10,000 people in one building. They're all doing it. That's how you get people to follow in the West. In the East, you get them to follow by saying the great man is attacking the two great Satans. In her was found the blood of the prophets and of the saints and all who have been killed on the earth. See... The whore of Babylon, that whorish, circish church. Whether it wears the name Islam or the prosperity gospel makes no difference to me. The blood of the true believers are on their hands. And they're on their hands because they either shed it themselves or did not one thing to stop it. And it's every nation... On earth. This lets you know, believer, that the blood of Christ, 1 Timothy 2 3 says he wants all men to be saved. By the time you get to 1 Timothy 2 6, he says, gave himself as a ransom for all men. The blood of Christ is for men of every nation in the world. But every nation in the world will shed your blood too. So then, the blood of Christ. And the blood of his saints and prophets purchases the nations of the world. Are you hearing me? You're not called to live. You're called to die. 2 Corinthians 4.10 says, We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always, how often? Always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life may be revealed in our mortal bodies. So then, death is at work in us, but life in you. 
The real call of the gospel is to go to die. Do you see what an absurd question it is to ask if it's safe? Romans 6, 5 says, If we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. You are believing that there are some problems that are only solved when you meet him. You know, let's put those seven things on the screen and we come to our close. (coughs) Every one of you in here has a, a purpose. It involves speaking and demonstrating. All of you will be warred against by the powers of hell with feelings of failure. If you're new in Christ, that starts day one. You just got baptized in the Holy Ghost, the devil will tell you you made it up. You just got born again and fell in love with the church, he'll begin telling you that you're the only one in there like this and nobody will understand. All of those things because he's a lying liar. When you fight through that, he'll say that your impact is too small. But you have to be willing to be a spark that sets something on fire. He will call you to those that are poor and broken and come from the worst of the worst places. You will begin to have compassion to want to guide them. That means you call sin, sin, and righteousness, righteousness. He will give you a region that you are responsible for. For me, it is a swan. And because he has engraved them on his palms, he will ask you to give your life for them. But there is a product from all of this. In Isaiah 49, 18, he says something amazing. Lift up your eyes and look around. All your sons gather and come to you. As surely as I live, declares the Lord, you will wear them all as ornaments. You will put them on like a bride. To bring clarity to this, I have two scriptures for you. The first one is Revelation 19, 7 through 8. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, were given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. For every woman in the room, did you want an ugly wedding dress? On that day, you wanted pictures, you wanted your family, you wanted everybody to see. How many of you had somebody else make you up? You can talk out loud, don't you lie. (laughs) In the analogy, your wedding dress is the righteous acts of the saints. But that's not what Isaiah said. He said your sons would be like ornaments... For a bride. Brides, what did you value more than your engagement ring? What did you value more than your wedding ring? What is a more precious symbol of your union than that? Probably only when you had children. Let's look at Revelation 21. Guys, you'll be able to relate to this one. How many of you are a little uncomfortable thinking of yourself in a wedding dress? I personally can't think of Spencer in a wedding dress. And if I can picture you in a wedding dress, then we both have problems. 
In Revelation 21, 19, speaking of the same thing, he doesn't say a wedding dress, he says a city. The foundation of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. Here is the sowed as Peyton walks up here. We know that the father gave Joseph a richly ornamented coat. It was a symbol of his great love for Joseph. And Joseph was raised to a place where he became savior of the world. Do you all know that story? Yes. Well, he teaches Isaiah about one too. Everybody who is saved is given righteous acts. Those righteous acts are like a wedding dress. But those that will go into their region of responsibility to die for the gospel, he will make the people in that region to you like sons. And when they are born again, they will be like precious stones in the city of God or like a bride with her wedding jewelry on. They are your adornments for an eternity. In these last few weeks, we've been talking about how to raise kings as sons, how to raise queens as daughters, how to go into the mission field with no reserves. The truth is, is if you empty yourself of everything today, God will adorn you for an eternity in the lives of the people that are saved because you stayed on purpose. You will have Isaiah's beautifully ornamented coat. I pray that you have that. You know, you don't have to go across the ocean to get that. But you do have to take responsibility for a region. You have to fight through these steps. Your children are your richly ornamented robe. It ought to start with the ones in your house and move outward. Saints, could you stand to your feet?